Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. This is Steve Orlands, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, uh, not coming to you from my ordinary venue, so you don't see my two tigers behind me. Uh, but I felt we needed to do this program in short order. The war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, obviously, is front page news every single day. One of the things that has not, and obviously China's role uh, and potential role as a mediator, it's you know, it's continued trade with Russia has been the focus also of a lot of our discussions. One of the things which we haven't discussed sufficiently is China's media, the way it is talking about the war in Ukraine, its effect on the Chinese people, and how that kind of tells us about what's going on in the Chinese government. So we recruited two of America's outstanding experts in this area to talk with us the, this, this afternoon. One is Xiaoyu Pu, who is now Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Nevada, Reno. His focus is on Chinese foreign policy and international relations. And the other is Maria Repnikova, who is assistant professor of global communications at Georgia State University and is an expert on China's media politics, including propaganda, journalism, and soft power. Both, I should say, most importantly, are public our fellows in the public intellectuals program of the National Committee, where the intent is we take young scholars, young experts, and use them to educate America and America's, uh, the public and the elites in America. And that is precisely uh, what they are doing today. But let's start with Maria. Talk about Chinese media coverage of Ukraine. Talk about the concern there is with what the United States government said is misinformation by uh, Chinese media in this area. Sure, thank you so much for having me uh, join this very important discussion. So my analysis of Chinese media coverage of Ukraine, the war in Ukraine over the past probably five weeks, it's hard to believe it's been this long since the war has started, um, showcases several themes. I mean, one important theme I think is that for Chinese citizens, this war has been largely underreported. For example, the images from the Bucha massacre and other horrendous uh, crimes against humanity committed by the Russian army in Ukraine have not been showcased or, or widely sort of reported and distributed to Chinese citizens. So underreporting this war, I think it's, it's also a form of silencing, right? It might not be called propaganda, but it's, it's kind of undercovering or not reporting enough about this conflict. But the other themes is that when we see what is reported, one of the key themes is that there's often blame that's being put on the West, in particular on NATO, but also the United States uh, when it comes to instigating this war. So instead of you know, looking at it as Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, uh, a lot of the analyses and reporting focuses on who is really behind this war in the first place. And it's about militarization of Eastern Europe, of the region, and kind of forcing Russia to react. And in this context, we see that this discussion is somewhat pro-Russia, but it's often masking you know, uh, really anti-West or anti-NATO uh, statements and sentiments in, in this coverage. And I think that applies both to external communication that's aimed at the global publics, uh, but even more so domestic public in China. 
So those are kind of the, the big um, um, themes, the big takeaways. And I think the stance in the media hasn't changed that much, even though the war is ongoing, we don't see any fundamental shifts. And I think Bucha massacre is a good example of that. This would be an opportunity to say something else or to report uh, more from Ukraine for the Chinese public to, uh, to really reveal some of the horrors of this war. We don't see very much uh, on that for domestic public. In particular, I was struck by some of the phrases that were used in very few reports coming out of Chinese media, such as the so-called Bucha incident, right? It's not the incident, but it's so-called, so meaning that there maybe there's some ambiguity around that. It, it requires more investigation, right? We don't have a clear-cut story the way it's presented by Western media or by Ukrainian um, media as well. So I'll start there. I have more to say, but I wanted to give a room for more questions. But talk about some of the specifics, the specific inaccuracies. One of the things that the U.S. government has been deeply concerned about is, for instance, repeating Russian misinformation about U.S. Uh, bioweapons and chemical weapons facilities in Ukraine. Talk about how the Chinese media has covered that and repeated the disinformation. And, you know, what, what is going on there? What is the court? How does that work? That, you know, I know a lot of these journalists, they're generally responsive. I mean, we might not like what they say. You know, you can argue about what caused the war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But some of this stuff is just not arguable. Yeah, so I did observe the, the repetition of the biolabs, uh, you know, conspiracy theory, we can call it disinformation, uh, fake news, whatever terms we use, but it did appear first in Russian media and Russian official statements. And then we saw almost exact same statements being shared uh, and reported by some Chinese media, but also some uh, foreign, I think it's foreign ministry spokespeople have also shared some of these statements. So it wasn't just the media, it's also some of these individual actors. And of course, not all, I know it's a very complex system, so I'm not saying that everybody was repeating it, but it was quite striking that this was happening. Nonetheless, I think it's some ways, to me at least, this, this biolabs topic in particular goes back to the kind of contestation of the origins of COVID uh, and kind of the, back to the pandemics, because we saw a lot of these back and forth uh, accusations between the US and China, and for quite a long time, Chinese government, at least in some media statements, maybe not the government itself, but some media statements were blaming the US, that the, the COVID itself has originated in the US, not in China. And I saw some of this also portrayed in some social media platforms, in particular by some diplomats even based in Africa that would kind of you know, share some of this conspiracy theory that this is actually not China who is to blame for this, but maybe it's even coming from the US. So in some ways, this kind of biolabs theory fits the larger maybe disinformation trends we've been seeing. So it's not a unique uh, example. I think it kind of builds on the larger um, the larger motivations, but also the larger kind of um, dynamics here when it comes to this specific topic. Uh, but when it comes to other topics uh, in terms of disinformation, we see some selective uh, adaptation of Russian narratives and Russian footage. So for instance, when I was watching you know, CCTV coverage of the war, we see that uh, a lot of the footage comes directly from Russia or from the Russian side. Like the reporter himself is either based in Moscow, reporting from Russian kind of official press conferences and statements, or you know, reporting directly, incorporating Russian footage. And we see some of that also on social media with Sputnik, it's a very popular Russian media outlet, often being used as a source by Chinese media. So there's quite a lot of this kind of quotation, selective quotation, adaptation of Russian media sources, narratives, footage, and of course, much less footage coming from Ukraine. So a lot of this, you know, maybe uh, is opportunistic because the media, I think, are instructed to tell a more pro-Russian story. Uh, and as a result, they're kind of not forced to, but it's, it's convenient for them to use Russian footage because nobody else is really telling a pro-Russian story here. Most Western media are using footage from Ukraine. So if you want to tell a more pro-Russian story, you have to kind of rely on Russian footage. So maybe part of it is opportunistic. Part of it could be top-down. Part of it could be the journalists themselves adapting it to, to appear as if they're you know, standing in line with the, the official orders. But we do definitely see this widespread trend of using 
uh, Russian footage, Russian narratives, Russian media reports in Chinese media. Professor Pru, is there any difference between kind of the media position and the Chinese government position? Is it is it kind of viewed any is it any different or is it just hand and glove together? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Steve. I think that uh, potentially there might be a gap between Chinese government's official policy and the media coverage. Uh, China, uh, in a general sense, the Chinese government considers three factors. Uh, maybe there are um, uh, some more, but number one is global balance of power. For that, they, they want to maintain some kind of strategic partnership with Russia. Number two, is uh, UN Charter and uh, sovereignty, including Ukraine's sovereignty. Number three is economic interest. So China's economic interest, uh, economic connections with, with the West is much bigger, much more important for, for China. So I think the Chinese leadership think about these three big considerations. They might, I actually, my, my personal observation is the Chinese government's overall policy is try to be neutral, try to be neutral. But on the other hand, uh, when they send this kind of guideline to, to media sort of operations, the media people might, might hi selected highlight some stories, might be more appealing to the public, given the deterioration of US-China relations, especially during the Trump era. You can imagine both at the elite level and, and the public level have some kind of residual sort of anti-West, anti-US sort of resentment. So media people, and also, by the way, political correct, correctness in this, in that kind of context, uh, sort of highlight this kind of the blaming the US is politically safe than talking about the real origin of the war or actually criticizing Russia uh, might become politically risky for these media people. So in this kind of overall context, we can imagine at the operational level, media people might tend to sell more anti-West blaming US story rather than the, 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 the real story about the war itself. I think that might expand, but for actual foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So actual foreign policy diplomats and we, we can maybe divide the Chinese foreign diplomats into different type, right? So like ambassadors, they really care about how to deliver for the Chinese people. Uh, think about Ambassador Qin or former Ambassador Tri Tenkai. They all want to deliver, uh, stabilize the US-China relations, deliver. But the propaganda people, I mean, some, even some of the spokesperson, they are performing. Right? They, they, they try to appeal in domestic audience. So then we can see not only there is a potential gap between media and actual foreign policy of, of diplomats, even within foreign ministry, different diplomats have different functions. Those mm -hmm. ambassadors they want to deliver, they might work more uh, sort of pragmatically to address issues, but, but for some of the spokesperson, their function is primarily to, to for, for domestic mobilization. So they might exaggerate some story. And of course the media might, might get the, this kind of story even in a, uh, in a more extreme way. So I think that explained some kind of gap between propaganda narrative and, and the actual foreign policy. 
How high up in the Chinese system does the propaganda narrative get fixed? Does it go all the way up, all the way up to the president? Does it go up to, you know, Hong Ying, the, the, the head, you know, is it the standing committee? Is it the Politburo? Or is it something lower than that? How high up does this need to go? Mm, my, my general sense is that at the highest level, I mean, Politburo standing committee, uh, always there's one person managing part of his work portfolio is managed to manage propaganda. So I can imagine that at highest level, they provide some sort of broad guiding principle, but they don't manage sort of uh, uh, operational sort of stuff uh, in most cases, like maybe Ukraine uh, war, uh, they, they maybe talk about some general principle, right? I mentioned the three considerations. They might talk about something like that, but the specific maybe department of propaganda, they might consult with foreign ministry, they send a specific guidance to state media. I think that they don't typically don't they don't manage which story will be covered in, in, most, in most daily basis. I don't I don't think so. They manage Maria, that. You, do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I agree with uh, with Xiaoyu. I think it's also we, as a result of this um, kind of different layers, right, of power, different gatekeepers. We see some improvisation on behalf of some actors. For example, New York Times, I think, reported a few days ago that there were some provi provincial directives to universities. Some universities were instructing how to talk about the war in Ukraine. Uh, but when you click on the link, you actually see it was only one university in Heilongjiang province. It was a very specific <laughs> example. So it was just, it's just one example where, you know, I think it's a bit easy to say, well, yeah, there, this is happening across the country. It's this mobilized effort, but maybe this particular university was trying to showcase its, its loyalty or to show that they're abiding by this higher principles of propaganda, but actually it's not a na nationwide kind of effort. Um, so for now, we don't see evidence that every university is adopting this kind of instructions, but that's something that often gets attention of uh, Western media. As I mentioned earlier in my opening comments, there was a huge concern in the U.S. government at the repeating of the Russian uh, fake news about the chemical and biological weapon facilities in Ukraine. And there was concern that the senior levels of the Chinese government did not understand how potentially damaging this was because the, the history suggests it's a false flag operation by the Russians and they use that to, to use chemical or biological weapons. Um, after President Biden made that representation, did the Chinese stop? repeating that false narrative? What I heard is that, uh, uh, of course, Biden, Xi, virtual call, there's, there was a broad, very broad agenda talking about uh, no military support, no financial economic support, maybe the misinformation is part of the conversation. So definitely Chinese government has not yet provided any like military support, uh, financial support. I mean, China wants to maintain sort of bilateral economic, but also don't want to suffer from uh, collateral damage. Uh, so, but regarding this mis misinformation uh, a sort of uh, narrative, I, what I heard is that uh, like a foreign ministry spokesperson, Zhao Lijian, part, part of his function is to, to sort of like uh, fight back against the, the Trump era legacy, I think, right? So, I think, but but you even using this kind of uh, embrace Russia's misinformation. But I heard some uh, maybe policy advisors really caution against using misinformation to fight back previous misinformation. I think there are some voices in in, in the Chinese system 
uh, urging more caution. And also in terms of uh, media coverage, I, I at least my observation is there's some nuanced change in a sense that diversify the sources. Previously, Chinese media, maybe primarily, maybe even only rely upon Russia sources. But now they also sometimes they, they simultaneously show both Russian narrative and the Ukraine narrative. And also they've sent their journalists on the ground. I think in the early days, it, there were no Chinese journalists on the ground. Now they have Chinese journalists on the ground to cover, co cover the story. So maybe hopefully they, they will, would eventually uh, have more nuanced narrative. They had Chinese journalists embedded with Russian troops. Yeah, that was one one news outlet, but but also it's worth noting that Chinese oh, media. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there there is one, but I I I watch I watch is the 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 English channel CGTN. CGTN that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was just about to say that CGTN has been doing a very different kind of coverage than yes. CGTV. So we we see a, quite a distinction there, which which does suggest that maybe there's an attempt, at least for international audiences, to portray more complex picture. We do see footage coming from Ukraine, and as Xiaoyu mentioned, journalists being sent to the field and, and facing quite dangerous conditions like other reporters from Western media. But we don't see, at least I haven't seen as much of that happening for domestic Chinese media. So do the stories kind of travel back or trickle back to domestic Chinese publics? I'm not, I'm not as certain, did, did, but- put, Did they you know. have different levels of, of censorship for English and Chinese? That they can, yeah. that the Chinese government can accept more dissent in English than it can in Chinese media. In general, I think the, the gatekeepers are different and the, and the censorship itself varies uh, depending on who is the audience. And I think overall global channels like CGTN has had a bit more uh, leeway because they're meant to be also kind of a flagship news outlet, right? They're not supposed to be just a propaganda channel. They're meant to compete with other global news outlets like, you know, CNN or Al Jazeera. So that, that's the positioning that the Chinese state hopes to eventually, uh, for CGTN to eventually occupy. So for that, they need to have more balanced coverage. It's also a matter of competition for discourse power, for soft power, which even though it's been kind of on the, maybe in the shadows for the moment, it's still been a big objective of the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. do, do we know how many people watch CGTN in China? I'm, I'm not sure about those, uh, those statistics. Ying Wentai. I, I've never seen the Ying Wentai in China, but mm -hmm. maybe that's my own. Xiaoyu, do you happen to know? I'm not sure. Uh, sometimes some Chinese scholars will uh, post some video from CGT in WeChat group, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, maybe not a very popular in China, of course, mm -hmm. because it's primarily for domestic, uh, international audience. Mm -hmm. There is a, you know, I certainly, you know, I, I believe that China is walking, is trying to walk an unwalkable line mm -hmm. in this conflict. And I believe they need to come over to the moral side, the side which condemns the Russian invasion. And I basically said that on CGTN and it ran. I mean, it was directly critical and, and mm -hmm. people seemed to accept it. Um, I've also noticed a good degree, a fairly high degree of dissent in social media, whether it was the Huawei article early in the invasion, uh, a bunch of professors circulated another article criticizing Chinese government policy. We have a few more professors in the last few days mm -hmm. criticizing Chinese policy and saying, if we don't take a better policy, none of us will exist. Uh, what's going on there? What's, why this allowance for that kind of dissent? Mm, maybe I can talk about, uh, yeah, I think uh, in terms of foreign, 
uh, foreign policy debate. Even China is a one-party system, but in uh, for foreign policy, international issues, there are always all kinds of debate. I mean, for some of the issue like uh, like Ukraine war, uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine, uh, I my observation in the, in the China in China's foreign policy sort of uh, expert community, it's a very polarized topic. So it, it's a heated debate. Some maybe in, in virtual conference, some in WeChat group, in others, very much he, uh, heated debate. So uh, I think like, like uh, my general sense, there are four types of perspective. Let me briefly talk about this. Number one is a supporter role perspective. In a sense that China should jo join the West sanctioning even abandoning the, uh, the, the Putin's Russia. So that's larger Huawei's pers perspective, largely belong to this. The second perspective is shirker. So China should avoid uh, as the uh, sort of a damage, uh, try, try to uh, avoid the damage uh, in this conflict. Uh, number three is co-leader. Uh, China might not solve the problem uh, sort of single-handedly, but China might join other major powers to, to try to contribute to re resolve of the problem. Number four perspective is spoiler or challenger. In a sense that China should join the uh, join the join Russia, uh, largely challenging the US or so-called Western domination. My personal perspective is that the, all these different ideas in China's expert community are all there. A Chinese government position is somewhere I think is between shirker and co-leader. You can see some of the narrative. Sometimes they emphasize China is not the one, one party. China is not the party of the conflict itself. So, so that's kind of a shirker narrative. Sometimes officials emphasize China is willing to provide humanitarian uh, support and try uh, try emphasize political dialogue, multilateral approach. That's called a co-leader narrative. Uh, but I, I think the supporter or spoiler, uh, I think it's more of a, as a sort of perspective that's still there as part of the potential option, but not yet as China's official uh, policy. I think the official policy still try to be sort of uh, appear to be neutral uh, in the middle ground. So yeah, that's my, my observation. What accounts for Huawei's article being able to circulate for so long before it was taken down? Uh, let me add a, a little bit background about the Huawei article. Uh, Huawei actually is a very influential uh, sort of political scientist, expert in, in China. He was a former student of Wang Huning uh, back in his uh, Fudan era. So that partially, maybe partially explained, uh, even his uh, uh, article is not the same as China's official policy, but his article might, could be stay, stay there uh, longer time than some others. And also he initially actually tried to, I heard the story, he initially tried to write that uh, article as a policy memo to the highest level of the leader, top leadership. And then he sent that article, I mean, but people, officials in Shanghai, dare not send his policy memo to the highest level. Maybe, of, of course, his argument is different from official policy. So he sent to Dr. Liu Yawei, then Carter Center published that. I think partially, and I also heard some of the, although his article, not every expert agree with his argument, but there are 
very influential China and uh, Chinese international relations foreign policy expert actually agree with Hui's sort of policy description. So, so, so that all contribute to this. I think uh, maybe my, my, my sense, my, this is my speculation, why his article was eventually censored because he not only talk about foreign policy implication, he also partially talk about domestic political implication. He criticized Putin's Russia. Then he also talking about uh, authoritarian dictatorship has no future. Ultimately, Western democracy is more influential. I think that the domestic sort of uh, implication part of it, AC, might trigger some of the red line in Chinese censorship. I don't think the international perspective is that problematic in the Chinese system. So, because a lot of some other experts, at least some, would agree with Huawei in terms of foreign policy implications. There were many other statements and sentiments on social media that were also, you know, questioning or trying to pre present a different perspective. Not all of them are well-known scholars. Some of them are just average mm -hmm. people. And some of the initiatives I've been looking at is also fact-checking initiatives, like by some journalists who try to fact-check Chinese state media reporting and to suggest that maybe something isn't quite right or, or that, you know, they check it and see that the other reports from the Western media uh, reported differently. So some of the kind of very subtle efforts that don't get as quickly deleted are still continuing to take place on social media. And so the thing that was very striking in the past few days, this is not directly related to Ukraine, but it's related to creative online kind of critiques, is about the COVID lockdown in Shanghai. And we've seen some of these hashtags, in particular one that was a few days ago, it was titled, US is the biggest country of human rights deficit. And of course, this kind of anti-American hashtag was actually occupied by netizens to argue that China is, the, is the, the one with human rights deficit, in particular how the pandemic is being handled, showcases the lack of kind of human dignity, human rights, um, and so forth. And we've seen all of these efforts taking place over the past week or so, this kind of pro, uh, you know, official hashtags about Charlie Dien or other anti-US kind of uh, statements being sort of occupied or taking advantage of by the netizens to, show, to highlight very different positions. So in some ways we see this domestic critique at the moment kind of fusing with this uh, Ukraine war in a very interesting way. So they're not directly talking about the war, but they're talking about their own government. Um, so I found that to be really interesting. Does the debacle in Shanghai as a result of the lockdown and kind of the social media outcry affect this discussion of Ukraine? Or they're just two completely separate paths? Maria? That's a little, it's, a, it's a little bit hard to tell yet, but what we do see is that at least some of this anti-Western, anti-American you know, kind of statements or hashtags that are continuing to spread or to be shaping kind of public discourse in social media, they're being, as I said, occupied or taking advantage of netizens to actually critique Chinese government. So in some ways we see some of kind of intersection of these two topics, but I'm not sure yet whether or not this lockdown itself is going to influence how, you know, the war is allowed to be discussed or covered. Uh, we do see some of these hashtags being deleted and kind of replaced with new ones. So there's definitely a pushback from the propaganda system. But in terms of just like the overall kind of um, uh, space for some critique being present at the moment, or, or, or at least early on, I think this is also common for many kind of public opinion crises or major events uh, in China, whether it's international, but especially domestic events, we do see that there is a little bit of space often allocated for some opinions to be expressed, but then very quickly within days, sometimes it's weeks, the clampdown begins, like it's kind of, it's, it gets sort of cleared out. <laughs> so so I, I don't think it's unique to this particular crisis. We see some of this kind of maneuvering happening in previous um, cases. Of course, Ukraine is very unique, but it, it's also a crisis event, I think, for Chinese public opinion. This 30 minutes has flown by. Uh, let me just ask one final question. Any chance that 
the media narrative in China is going to change. You know, I've written and has been reposted in China a lot that China can't walk this line. It's not walkable and it needs to kind of step up as a global leader and help mediate a resolution of the conflict. And that has not been censored. Uh, obviously it's a constructive suggestion. So they would, I think that kind of fits within what's allowed to be said, even if they choose not to do it. But is there any chance that this media narrative is going to change and become more, it becomes more similar to the Western narrative and really talk about this ongoing tragedy, you know, which may be the greatest tragedy of the 21st century, maybe of the last 80 years. I mean, it's just, it's shocking that this friendship with Russia has allowed the Chinese to kind of avert their eyes from what is a humanitarian crisis and ultimately is going to affect China's economy. Uh, maybe I, I can also provide this some, some, some sort of ana brief analysis. I think ultimately, uh, I think uh, there is an expectation gap between the West and, and the Chinese government in a sense that I think maybe the Chinese government ultimately would still try to take a middle ground, so to sort of uh, a neutral position as a formal uh, policy. Uh, but I still, uh, but I still see possibility uh, that there will be more nuanced narrative emerge in China, in a sense that not talking about like uh, like China joined the Western narrative, but how about China itself as a sort of a more responsible great power, right? The, the Chinese leaders are always talking about. Responsible China try to be a responsible great power. Responsible great power, of course, will 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 take care of its own interests, but also take uh, think about broader international image, international implication. I think that a second these days, I see some of the Chinese international relations experts they increasingly uh, provide more nuanced narrative. I, I recently see some articles talking about international politics is not just about geopolitics. It's ultimately about the person, millions of people's personal lives and personal relationship. I think that kind of sort of like humanized international relations thinking, that kind of voices are, are emerging in China. I think those kind of voices hopefully will urge the Chinese media to be more nuanced. I think there yeah. might be some hope there. Yeah, Maria? Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful along with Xiaoyu that there'll be more nuanced perspective, but I'm a little bit, I guess, uh, more skeptical about, uh, also skeptical about the large reversal, just kind of a complete mm -hmm. reversal and, uh, and Chinese media being in tune with Western media uh, in a big way. I think part of it is because, you know, we won't see any changes in the media without a change in official policy. Media in this environment, um, in the current political environment is very constrained. So it's very hard to imagine media itself as stepping out of its censorship orders and reporting something dramatically different. I mean, CGTN is one example, but it's again, it's oriented towards global audiences, but domestic media, I don't think is going to change its position without official position changing. Um, and the other part of it, I think it's public opinion, nationalistic public opinion. I think, how do you make a big reversal in policy and in media discourse 
after weeks and weeks and weeks of a very different narrative, in particular anti-US, anti-NATO narrative positioning China as a challenger, right? At least through the media. I'm not saying that these experts agree on that, but the media has been doing this kind of narrative building. And many netizens on social media supported that. So to reverse that back might also make the Chinese government appear somewhat weak. It's like, well, why didn't we become the bigger kind of mediator to, in the first place? How did we allow these crimes to go on for this long? So I'm a little concerned about you know, how would this play out domestically if there was a big reversal? Of course, I'm hopeful for more nuance, and I think that's possible, but a large change, kind of a complete 180 degree change, I think seems a bit unlikely, at least at this time, in my view. Yeah, at these, as these crimes against humanity are broadcast daily, mm -hmm. um, the, you know, deaths of civilians, the tying of hands and the execution of these civilians, I, I don't know what percent, I've always wondered what percent of Chinese have access to international news through VPNs, but it's it's significant. I mean, it's it's significant. And as that begins to filter up, and I've seen it from folks via WeChat, via uh, you know, other communication mechanisms where there is there is increasing concern, even though the official media is one thing, the ability of lots of people, including in the leadership, to access what is an ongoing human tragedy, tragedy may create the pressure to change. I think what you both correctly point out is the nuance of the coverage. The co it won't be a reversal, but it will be a gradual change. You know, uh, the Chinese, you know, control of media for political purposes is extremely effective. It's what I wrote my college thesis on mm -hmm. in the Chinese Communist Party in the Yan'an period was doing this. So it's a, it was, you know, it, they really are expert. And if there's enough pressure on the leadership from within, mm -hmm. uh, and every day is a tragedy, every single day. I've only worn yellow and blue ties for the last 40 days mm -hmm. to just remind myself that this tragedy is ongoing and, and what is happening in Ukraine is unacceptable. And if Joanne Lai was alive, he would oppose current Chinese policy. And that's important to remember that territory, that sovereignty and territorial integrity is a fundamental tenet, as Xiaoyu doubtlessly teaches all of his students. Uh, <laughs> Chinese foreign, foreign policy has been one of the five unbreakable tenets, and allowing this to happen is simply not what Zhou Enlai would have would have allowed. So I th thank you both so much for doing this on short notice. This has been an incredibly informative uh, discussion. And let's hope for some change in nuance. But thank you both. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you so much. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.